Welcome to React Roundup. I'm Jack Harrington. I'm here with my co-host, TJ Van Toll. Hey, everybody. And Paige Nadringhouse. Hello, everyone. And today we're talking to Eric Simons. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Ah, thank you for showing up. And what do you have to talk about today on React Roundup? Well, I think probably probably a couple of things, but I think probably the, the most interesting thing is some stuff that we've been working on with uh, the Next.js team and the Google Chrome mm. team that lets you like run Node.js in your browser, which might sound like a really weird idea, but it's actually very awesome. I mean, especially with the kind of the, the current trend of, you know, React is really kind of bl- you know blurring the line between what is server code and what is front end code, right? And so this actually kind of, this allows you to actually have a much faster and better development and debugging experience for that. And we can kind of dig into that, but I think that's probably the most interesting thing. I mean, it's called sure. web containers, the, the technology we made for it. And so I don't know, maybe you saw it on Twitter at some point, maybe you didn't, but you know, we can kind of, we can kind of dig into it. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps. First, I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web. Then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. Yeah, I'm kind of a control freak. What can I say? The other reason is, is that sometimes I miss stuff or I run things in development, you know, it works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up in the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens and stuff breaks, right? I didn't configure it right. I'm an idiot and I didn't put the AWS credential in. I didn't do that last week, right? That wasn't me. Anyway, I need that error reported back. Hey, Chuck, I can't connect to AWS. The other thing is, is that this is something that my users often won't give me information on. And that's, hey, it's too slow. It's not performing right. And I need to know it's slowing down because I don't want them going off to Twitter when they're supposed to be using my app. And so they need to tell me it's not fast enough. And Sentry does that, right? I put Sentry in. It gives me all the performance data. And I can go, hey, that takes three seconds to load. That's way too long. And I can go in and I can fix those issues. And then I'm not losing users to Twitter. So if you have an app that's running slow, if you have an app that's having errors, or if you just have an app that you're getting started with and you want to make sure that it's running properly all the time, then go check it out. They support all major languages and frameworks. They recently added support for Next.js, which is cool. Visit sentry.io slash signup and use promo code ReactRoundup. That's all one word, ReactRoundup for three free months of their base team plan. No, it's super cool. And you, so you can run Next.js in the browser. Yeah, yeah. And so and it's actually, so it's like basically, well, I can, I can kind of back up. I kind of give the context of why that, how we ended up doing this thing. Yeah, so, go for it. So back five years ago now, uh, as of this month, actually, my co-founder of the company, his name's Albert. He and I actually grew up down the street from each other, literally here. So I guess people can't see the video, but I'm in Chicago at my parents' house right now visiting them. And Albert grew up like literally four to houses down. His parents are still there. And so we grew up and you know learned how to code together when we were in high school. And we ended up going out to Silicon Valley and starting some companies. But uh, five years ago, I guess about six years ago, we had the realization that browsers were like getting really powerful. And uh, at the time, we were actually teaching people how to do web development. And we kept running into this problem where like students who were learning would get stuck on like setting up stuff locally on their computer. And so we're trying to teach React and they'd be like, hey, React says I'm out of file watchers. And we're like, right. that is not yeah. React. That is just <laughs> stuff that broke on your computer for like no good reason. Right. So we we're like, okay, well, how do we, how do we like solve this problem? Because like we're, we're, we can't even teach React. Right. And we ended up like having this realization of, you know, all these build tools like Webpack and et cetera. Are just like they're written in JavaScript, 
right? And so theoretically, yeah. wouldn't it be possible to like copy pasta webpack and then slap it into a browser tab and like just kind of have it work, right? And and so right. the answer is like it's possible. It's just it's an incredible amount of work to do that. But Albert and I have always been suckers for a good challenge. And so we sat down for six months and built out essentially it's kind of like a code pen plus plus where it had npm built into it it had like webpack loaders you could you know do all this cool stuff and so we launched it and kind of like took off like a rocket and so that's stackbooks.com is effectively it's like this online ide that actually runs entirely in your browser it's not using servers and so this is different than things like github code spaces or like code sandbox run stuff on servers if you ever use those things you know you might notice they're like pretty slow you have to be signed in to use them that's because they're actually provisioning a server for you to write your code on which costs them money and, and there's a lot of latency etc so usually the experience is worse than your own local environment than when you're using one of these online things but anyway so the short of it is that we ended up figuring out like you know, a couple of years ago after having launched that it actually well, the web has been progressing at a really rapid rate and we realized that it was actually theoretically possible at least to write a new type of operating system in WebAssembly from the ground up where you could actually run Node.js entirely in the browser, which then opens up uh, the ability to run Next.js, Byte, all these different tool chains. And you can just NPM install them, NPM run start, and it's running all on your computer. So it actually works offline, et cetera. And so we actually, that's, uh, that technology is called Web Container. And so we actually rolled that out back in May. And so Stackbits is effectively that makes you know Stackbits just like the fastest, most secure IDE on the planet because it's all being done inside the browser security sandbox, et cetera. So that's kind of like that's like probably information overload, but that's kind of the short of like kind of how we started off and kind of how we got here today on the stuff we're building. Yeah, I think this is kind of crazy to me because like it took me a while, and maybe I can talk through this too, because it might help others. Because when I first saw the announcement. My first thought was like, oh, cool. Then my second thought was like, wait, what does this do again? Right? Because it's it's like, oh, because and what made it click for me is, you know, I write a lot of just like really quick. The main thing I use Node for is like writing little scripts to do things like I need to mess with some files or something. But my workflow for that is, well, I write some script locally and I run it locally because Node is a local thing because that's how it always like works in my brain. It either runs on my computer or it runs on some server somewhere. And the idea of going out to a browser and writing something with Node and running it is kind of like at, at the, like the very simplest level, what this sort of thing makes possible. And that sort of blows my mind a little bit because I still like the, the part that still doesn't totally run in my brain or that I don't totally compute is like, how is this possible? Because Node is Node is big, right? Like it's fairly complex. And so are you somehow like loading that? Are like people downloading Node when they go to like statplitz.com slash web containers or whatever? Or like how exactly are you like injecting that environment to make it possible to develop yeah. with these this sort of tech? Yeah, it's a it, that's a really good question. And then so to kind of add to the to and I think I kind of I missed the punchline, which is actually that running Node.js in stackbooks.com is faster than your local environment. Like execution speeds are 20% faster. When you go to stackbooks.com and like start an XJS project, you can kind of get, you can actually literally see how fast it runs, right? And the NPM installs are like 5x faster. And so it's like, how is that even possible, right? How is it even possible that you could like take Node, put it in a browser and it's like faster inside of your browser than it is outside of your browser on local? And so the answer is actually, it was like this kind of the key realization that we had was that, you know, Node, like if you go back to the origins of Node, they pulled V8 out of Chrome to bring it to local, right? But 
Google Chrome and all these other browsers, they have their own JavaScript engine, whether it's V8 or SpiderMonkey or whatever. And so if you can actually write like a, a, a compiling tool chain that can take Node.js from source, rip out V8 and actually use the existing JavaScript engine, right, in your browser, you don't have to drag along a lot of the, the, the gigantic stuff that usually comes along with that because it's already included. And the other benefit of that is that your browser is continually updating, getting faster and more secure while you sleep, right? Local with Node, they use a specific pinned version of V8 with every release of Node. And so if you're using Node 8, you're using a version of V8 that is incredibly old and has lots of security vulnerabilities at this point. But by actually coupling it, you're with StackBlitz, right? Your environment actually gets faster and more secure while you're sleeping. And so what that actually kind of gives you, right, is like with one copy of V8, there's actually a huge inefficiency on local. Because if you think about web development, like what does it kind of look like? Usually you have Node.js processes running Webpack or whatever have you, some end number of let's call it like five to 10 pro- like processes that are running. So that's five to 10 copies of V8 there. You have VS Code open, which is Electron, which is therefore Chrome and has its own copy of V8. And then you have Chrome open previewing your web app, Right. So all in all, we're talking about a dozen plus copies of V8 running, which is hugely inefficient. And so by actually collapsing it all into same one in the browser, there's a, there's a gigantic performance gain you get from doing that. And so that's actually the main thing that, that allows StackUp to be faster than your, than your local machine is that it's using one copy of V8 instead of dozens kind of sprawled across these different processes or applications on your computer. So that is that brings me to a good question because typically when I'm using Node, it's because I have maybe like a Create React app front end, a Node Express server back end. Can I build that in StackBlitz as well? Something that oh, serves yeah. up different files and routes to APIs and does all the st- typical things that you'd expect a UI to be able to do? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So so that's in our first market we're really going after with this technology is web development. And you can do all of that. So you can run a create React app with a, a separate because if you actually go to stackbits.com, you don't have, because it, it's running on your computer, we don't have to, we don't make you log in even. So you can literally go there now, start a Next.js app or start a GraphQL app, and, and you actually see a terminal that pops up. So you can actually run multiple processes at the same time, just like you would on local. And so you can be running create React app and a GraphQL server where they're like talking to each other and everything entirely inside of your browser. And so like all of the, the sort of common workflows that you would be doing in web development, absolutely. Like that's exactly what this thing is designed for. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is super fascinating because it's just, it enables a lot of stuff because you had said you'd worked with the next JS team. Have you talked with them at all? Because I could totally see like embeddable demos, like, because like right now with Next.js, if you want to learn how something that has some sort of server component into it, like server rendering or something like that, like you can't, they can't share a live example of that, right? Like they, yeah. they could share a GitHub repo, but the that's always a pain, right? To download a GitHub repo. And like, sometimes that involves some setup. Anytime there's a server, there's some sort of setup. But like, I could totally see just embedded in their docs, like here's here's the StackBlitz instance. Here's the, the, like almost like, here's your client sites code. Here's your server side code. Much like you'd embed like a code pen that shows how to make a dropdown work or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and they, so I think in their they've actually adopted this for their kind of the official examples in the Next.js uh, repo and docs, or whatever have you. So I think you, if you actually browse to those in in, in GitHub, there's on a lot of them they have like these open and stack buttons where you can actually pop them open. 
and then you can actually embed this stuff too. And so like, I think that the Node.js documentation site actually, I think just they've, they've started embedding this, you know, like StackBlitz projects because again, like compared to like, uh, there's these other online things that use VMs like Repolit or Glitch Code Sandbox. The problem is that when you actually embed them, you, they're, they typically don't let you edit the code because they don't want to provision a VM for every person who's just browsing by the page, right? Because it's going to be way too expensive. And they, so with this model, like we can actually really give this out for free to everyone, which has been kind of an important thing from our perspective is that like this is coming back to the origins of why we did this. This is a huge upgrade from the learning experience. Right. And so we don't want this to be something that is paywalled or like you have a whole bunch of hoops you have to go through to try and use it. You should be able to just be able to be browsing. If I want to learn Node.js, I should be able to browse their documentation and have a live environment that's booting inside of my browser. Right. Like without running into file watcher issues. Like that's uh, <laughs> 2021. This should be fixed by now. Right. So that's, that's actually a really, a really key thing that you know, like the learning angle, I think is a, a huge area where this technology actually really improves the experience substantially. I think that that's fantastic. One question that I have is how how do people like, because I haven't used it myself, but how do people like the environment setup? Because I know that everybody who has their VS Code instance has like, you know, their prettier formatting, their ES Lint setup, their Git Ignore, Git Lens, or all the stuff that they've got plugged in. So how do you handle that and all the particulars that people like to kind of tweak and set for their own own development? No, I really, it's a very good question. That's actually what we're working on now. So basically, uh, today we've got kind of this stripped down version of VS Code. This is a, we designed to be very fast from the get-go. And this is actually the same editor we launched with like five years ago. And so this is before we had the ability to just execute arbitrary Node.js programs in the browser, right? Now, actually, what's, what's kind of cool is that if you can run Node.js in a browser, it, when you actually look at VS Code and what like what makes VX, VS Code extension, like technically, like what what is a VS Code extension? They're all actually just Node.js programs. And so, what we're actually drilling into right now, I think we're it's looking like we'll have this out sometime in the next quarter, is that you're at, we actually are able to run VS Code wholesale inside of the browser, including running just arbitrary extensions. And so, so it's a, I think the ultimate solution we see to exactly what you're describing, because that is totally a, a really important point for us to nail, is like actually you'll be able to install all the same extensions that you use today and configure it exactly how you want. And what's kind of cool about it is like because this is it is a cloud networked IDE, it's it's using your browser to do the work, but that will sync automatically whether you use you're on your iPad or your laptop at your mom's house or whatever, right? Like it'll actually just kind of work out of the box because it's it's just like any other just like Figma or Google Docs. You know, your settings just kind of by default they're going to persist across. So yes, that's kind of the, that's that's how we're planning to to address that stuff. And it's actually working. It's actually pretty cool. We actually literally just got VS Code kind of fully mounted like I think it was like last week or something on top of Web Container. We haven't announced that yet, but like but that's like so sneak sneak peek. <laughs> you heard it here <laughs> first. Yeah, you heard it here yeah. first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's really cool. How do you get around the browser security limitations? I mean, if you're going to open up a port to, to for your next JS, like how does that actually work? Yeah, it's so that was actually kind of one of the key things that we had to figure out. Is um, so it, to be clear, it actually doesn't break out of the security sandbox at all, which is actually a big feature, mm-hmm. right? Because there's actually to just do kind of a quick aside on that is like security is actually one of the big things that that we see as the benefit of this approach, right? Because what's what's going on in the in the market right now is that we actually have nation states that are attacking U.S. and and other uh, companies' countries, 
And the actually the, the weakest link right now, because they previously they would try and brute force into your database or something like that, but that stuff's gotten pretty secure. The weakest link now is actually the developers who are writing the software for your bank's website, right? Because if, if you can actually if you can actually get them to download a malicious package and then run that on their computer, then you have access to everything. So you don't actually have to brute force into the into the the, the database or whatever. You just need to, you know get one of the devs to install. If you think about an npm install. You're talking about thousands of dependencies. So how hard is it to actually do that? Well, the answer is not hard. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happened with SolarWinds and all these other things going on. So, uh, but in Stackblitz, because it's actually not breaking out of the security sandbox, it actually gives this step function upgraded security because you can install the worst virus ever for NPM. And it is, you, all you have to do is just hit command W and close your browser tab. Like it, it cannot <laughs> go, go and scrape. It can't go anywhere. It can't, yeah. can't go and scrape your SSH keys because of the browser's built-in network restrictions. You're, you're not going to be able to like upload that to some random endpoint, right? So it actually gives you a really, really amazing security guarantee. And this is actually Stackwitz as a business. What we sell is we actually sell Stackwitz that runs behind the firewall at these gigantic banks, fintech, government, healthcare, et cetera, that are the subject of these sorts of attacks right now, Right. And so anyway, so, so, and so like how that's possible is that we don't break out of the sandbox. And so for networking specifically, what we actually ended up building was this TCP network, a virtualized TCP networking stack inside of the browser where it actually maps the like Node.js uh, TCP calls to the service worker API. So like when you actually spin Ooh. up a server in StackBlitz, what's actually going on is that there's this virtualized TCP network stack that's actually translating that into service worker request responses, right? And so it actually, what's that kind of cool about that, again, from a security angle, like that is only accessible to that browser instance. So if I, if you go to StackBlitz and you, you know, start an XJS project, you take the URL of the, the dev server and put it into like Safari or Firefox, you can't actually access that server, right? And that's another right. attack vector yeah. where people will actually, when they install something on your computer, they'll actually start scraping your localhost URLs to try and grab credentials from your development lifecycle. And so that's, it's just like another angle of like by running it in the browser, it's faster, it's more secure, it's way more affordable. It's just like a much better development experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I used to work at a hosting company and we had, we, we didn't do our development on our actual machines for those exact same security considerations. We would SSH into these Linux boxes where all our development stuff would run just because it was an isolated layer. But obviously, uh, constantly having to SSH into everything is also not the world's greatest experience. So I could see some, <laughs> like, some value of having like a standard sort of environment built in to get the security uh, benefits and the developmental benefits as well. Yeah, when I think about like onboarding to a new, like into a new gig, it's like usually three days or whatever to like get up on the code base, yeah. but also get the development environment set up. And some folks have used like Docker for dev, which has made that a lot easier, right? Because everything's kind of all the, the right version of node and all that. And then this is even that much easier. You literally just <laughs> go in your browser and it's so good to go. That brings up a question, though. If you're doing this development in StackBlitz, is there version control like you could get in GitHub if you accidentally delete something? Or is there, or how how do I deploy this? If I'm already accessing it in a browser, how do I change it from localhost or whatever the development environment is to actually put this out on the, the rest of the public web? Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's we have a minimal Git integration right now. It's it's like it's very alpha. We have like a very uh, we have a huge update that's going to be coming out next quarter where it, it basically because right now we're kind of in the phase of still solidifying the the core technology, making sure all the frameworks out there kind of run properly on this thing, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And and the next step after this is like allowing you to actually integrate this with your production workflows. So you'll actually be able to just like open up a a stat right now actually if you on any uh, github url if you just add the word blitz after github so githubblitz.com slash repo it'll you can kind of get an idea of a little taste of what this is going to look like but effectively any git repo you have you're going to be able to pull it in and mount it instantly and be doing you know working and committing back and reviewing pull requests and that sort of thing and so that's like version control is actually be a, a really a the most first class integration and of course, with that, you have CIs for things like Netlify and other like hosting providers where, you know, it'll whatever tool, tools you have set up for hosting, it'll it'll kind of work there. We have an, another integration we're going to be doing where, well, anyways, that's getting that. But like, that's, I think, the, the short of kind of how that stuff is going to work. And I think what's cool, so when you kind of talk about that, right, what's cool about being having this like web containers be able to mount any Git branch or repo is that, you know, on local, one of the biggest pain points is like when when you have like a colleague that's like hey like can you check out this branch really quick and like see if this thing works right and you're like in the middle of something you're like oh my god i'm gonna have to like stash all my changes or i commit it up it's like this whole thing right with this model you can actually crack open a whole nother copy you can open up dozens of copies of, of your code base and be running them at the same time without having to switch branches locally so it's kind of like the seamless workflow where it's like hey can you check this thing out sure click a link boom you boots up, you check the thing out, blah, you can commit to that branch. Meanwhile, your work over here is still there and you don't have to switch branches, right? So it just removes this whole friction point around, you know, on local, you really have to like be it's a very manual task of kind of like making sure your git, your your git situation is clean and like you're not losing work and like you're when you switch branches, where's that going? It's like that the whole workflow stuff really gets a lot easier when you can actually just have in fresh, isolated environments on demand that they're actually running on your local computer and not on like some cloud thing, right? Yeah, that's a huge selling point for me, actually, because I do this, I have to do this at work right now if I want to look at somebody's changes. But at previous places that I have worked, we've set up these massive Jenkins flows, which will, when somebody pushes to a PR branch or to a feature branch, it will automatically pick it up and build it and deploy it into some dev or staging environment. So you can at least look around. But not having to pull down changes locally to actually make tweaks and see what it looks like and still be on my branch that I've been working on a story on would be awesome. That to me is a huge, that would be, that'd be really, really cool. Totally. I think that's kind of what we're like, what we're eyeing for as well. Cause I think that's like, that's almost the, that's like the, to me, it's the most useful, like, you know, other than just like it's it's a great development environment, it's like that's something where like even if I want to continue using lo- my local environment as my primary way, having just like you have a, a preview link for you know Netlify or whatever on a PR, wouldn't it be just as useful and sometimes even more so to have a dev environment live like a live dev environment preview where you can pop it open, not only just preview it but actually like make changes and just commit them back to the branch, right? That's, I think that's like, it's kind of this crazy part of the workflow, right? Where if you think about it, a lot of like what GitHub does really well are just like these, these version control providers now. They, they actually allow you to do a lot of your workflow in the browser, right? And the main place where you have to kind of like, where you, you had, there's this sharp drop off of being able to work in the browser is when you have to open it up, review it, make changes, et cetera. 
So I think this is kind of like completing that workflow then because you can actually like do the development in the browser, make the PR in the browser, have the PR be reviewed in the browser and ran in the browser, right? So it's like, there's not this just hard context switch every time you're in that part of the process. So yeah, I, I agree. I, our entire team kind of agrees. We're like, God, we, we need this thing ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. I'm curious. So you, you say you do deploys of this, like internal deploys for companies. When you do that, do you ship like as an Electron app or is it just more just like a privately hosted thing that still runs in the browser? And I, it's sort of a leading question because I could say that my still biggest remaining concern with online editors is I, I don't like how the keyboard shortcut conflict, like because, because when you're still running in a browser, the browser is still going to eat a lot of keyboard commands that I want the editor to actually get instead. And you can't really override those. So I'm curious how you've, you've dealt with that and what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, so you actually can override them. So that's actually, that was actually one of the big things that convinced us that this was, that we could, you know, because I agree with you, like that's always been the worst, like all the previous online IDEs that have existed. Of course, they're using cloud VMs to do this stuff, which is slow and expensive, whatever. But also the experience is like you hit command W and then like <laughs> your editor goes away and you're like, oh, yeah, I did not mean exactly, to do that. Yeah. But I like my, I'm trained, my, my, I have muscle memory, right? And so what actually the key thing that enables this is desktop PWAs. So if you actually install Stackblitz or I mean any other desktop PWA, when it's actually in the installed mode, you actually can override every key binding, command W, command T, command N, all of that actually, just like a desktop app. And of course, as a desktop PWA, you lose the URL bar. It, it, it looks and functions like a desktop app. You have an icon on your dock. So the delta actually between what you can do with a PWA and an Electron app that that delta is, is like now approaching zero. And on top of that, the other thing too is like the Chrome actually shipped the native file system API last year. So that actually gives web apps the ability to, to open a piece of your file system, whether it's a folder or a specific file or whatever, and uh, give the web app read and write access to it. 
So one of the things with with web container and stackless that's interesting is like part of the VS Code rollout we're doing. God, I'm like just spilling the beans, but like basically the short of it is like to your point, like if this thing can feel like a desktop editor and it can actually mount folders already on your computer, you could actually use this as your primary editor, and you really wouldn't know the difference except for the fact that it automatically syncs all of your settings and it's like somehow way faster and you know <laughs> yada yada yada. Right. And so that's that's actually like kind of the, the key thing that we see is like really enabling this to like work in a meaningful way. Yeah, it took until I've I've long been the, a naysayer of web-based editors, like for more that like for tinkering, great, right? But as a longtime software developer, like it was always like, oh, but it's it's clunky and it's not like my real editor. And it took VS Code to like convince me that like, oh crap, like this is actually really good, really fast, and this is all web-based. So there's there's no reason at this point this can't be done in the browser. Like this, the speed is there. It's just solving these like last mile type of things to make it possible. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And, and it's been a long time coming. I mean, it's like, and this is kind of like you know almost like the first minute where you could kind of be doing something like this because I mean a lot of the APIs that we rely on didn't exist a couple of years ago. And some of them like with uh, WebAssembly threads and whatever, I mean, they're still kind of figuring out how to enable this in all browsers, right? So it's kind of like we're, we're at, this is like the, I think this this is going to be an interesting decade for, for this industry, I think, because the web is, I mean, the web is powerful enough to like write the web. Like that's kind of the key. That was the thing that blew our minds. We're like, this is the first time you can actually, like that's kind of, if you talk to people who, who have built, you know, stuff for platforms before, the two biggest stress test of any platform is one video games, right? Because you're talking about an incredible number of, of calculations that are happening, right? Typically in that. Um, and, and you're seeing a lot of browsers supporting video games now, right? Like a lot of browsers are moving in, uh, a lot of games are moving in the browser. And the second one is IDEs. Because you're, you know, the platform has to be powerful enough and have sufficient API surfaces to actually let you use the platform to build applications for the platform itself. Right. And so this is actually like the first time we've been able to do that for the web, right? This is like a story 30 years in the making where you've never been able from a technical standpoint to use a browser to write applications for the browser without a server or something involved, right? But that's like cheating, you know, because it's like that's it's like going to an IBM main, uh, mainframe to compile an iPhone app or something, right? It's like, it's not, it's, got, it's not running on that same device. So anyway, so like that's, that's I think what's kind of crazy is I think that that is... Historically, that's an important moment for any platform because then that means there's going to be an, an explosion of new types of applications that, that weren't possible before, right? And an explosion of applications, period, because the friction has gotten a lot lower. So yeah, anyways, interesting time to be in the web development space. I think it's I think we're just we're just getting started. <laughs> so you mentioned education as kind of the impetus for this. And I, I'm very interested in that myself. I've done a lot of work in like fourth grade classrooms, with IoT type stuff. And then also, you know, at high school level, I mean, the issue always is they've got Chromebooks, right? And what can you do on a Chromebook? You know, you can do the little IoT things for sure, drag and drop this and that. But like, can can this now work on a Chromebook? Can I go teach these kids React? Because I'd love to do oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Like, I think that's like, so we actually test against the worst of these devices. Like, um, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's a, no joke. I've got this uh, six year old, I think it's like, I think it's like 1.2 gigahertz sort of mobile Intel processor with a gig Oof. of RAM, maybe. Right. It's, it's just this terrible, absolutely, you know, like, it's difficult to just type in to sign into Google on the thing, <laughs> sort of like level. Right. 
Yeah. And and so we actually, you know, when we were building this, we had no idea. Like, you know, we like uh, we work a lot with like the Chrome team and like Google's uh, Ventures is actually an investor in our company. So we've got great relationships with these folks. And even you know, the people we talked to, they're like, maybe it should work. Like we really, no one's ever done this, right? Like, you know, and so, yeah. and you know, that was kind of a big question for us is like, if this only is going to work on MacBook Pros with 16 gigs of RAM and yada, yada, that's, that's kind of, that's not, it's not going to fit our solution criteria. But to our surprise, again, because of the efficiency of the model of one copy of V8 and a whole bunch of other stuff that we do to make it you know, insanely fast and efficient, it's actually the first time you can even run these tool chains on those sorts of devices. And, and so you can actually run Create React app, Next.js, et cetera, on these like just wimpy devices. And it's kind of kind of incredible. And, and you know, it's, it's certainly slower than my Mac, but it's, it, but it's actually faster than the other online IDs that use a VM to do the work. So that's like been like, that was for us. That's like the second we saw that we're like, this is, we're going all in on the strategy because you know, every, every K you know, K through 12 school and even colleges can use this for free. And again, that's always been the problem with schools. They don't have the the money to pay for this stuff typically. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. and we don't have to foot the bill. Like all we're paying is this, right. like we have a million something developers that use Stacklets every month. And we pay, I think like 800 bucks total on our AWS. Yeah, Cause the computing is all done on the edge. It's exactly it's all on your exactly, machine. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's just this transient electricity cost the user's paying, which is effectively nothing. And so the model just works out really well. Where you know, from from people in K twelve who are just learning how to code all the way to like Fortune fifty, where they're like writing the software that you know we use to wire money, right? Is like it kind of it, this this kind of technology can actually span that entire that entire category, which is kind of rare. Like it's not often that you see something that can kind of accommodate all those use cases so elegantly, right? Yeah, when we talk education, our, our minds usually go to like fourth graders or young kids, but there are a lot of companies that spend a lot of money on training their, their not fourth grade employees to get up to speed on the <laughs> technology and would gladly welcome anything that cuts down on that, right? That makes That automates things that previously they had to teach and have processes around and all that sort of thing. Or that couple oh. hours to onboard somebody. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Exactly. And it might lower your your cost for actually outfitting a new employee because I can't do development except on a Mac. That's how I've learned, and that is what I will die in the grave knowing I refuse to even try (laughs) Windows or Linux. So, one question that that we have, in addition to all the devices that it can run on, can it run on different web platforms? Can it run on or uh, yeah, Microsoft Edge? Can it run on Chrome? Probably, obviously. Can it run on Firefox? Is it compatible across all of those? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So yeah, today it runs on Chrome and Edge like perfectly. And on Safari, it requires a config flag. Or so not Safari. On, on Firefox, well, actually, on Firefox and Safari, it requires a config flag, uh, like a runtime config flag. And so actually the big issue that we, we built all this stuff on top of web standards. And so like it, it should absolutely work on all of these things. There, there's no platform-specific APIs that we're using to make the core of this functionality work. There's actually what, what kind of happened is after the Spectre and Meltdown stuff, you all probably kind of heard about this, like the shared array buffers, and they've been trying to figure out how to bring them safely back to the web. And this is an application that has to use shared array buffers. There's no other way to do what we're doing than having shared memory with atomic uh, write locking, right? And so because of that, we're kind of blocked by the, you know, Chrome's kind of always at the bleeding edge of this stuff. And so, you know, them and, and therefore Edge, because Edge is, you know, kind of is Chromium now. That stuff works fine. I think Firefox, Firefox is actually, uh, is, is, is darn close. 
Safari is just kind of doing their own thing, but they usually come around given enough time. But, you know, so that's, that's kind of where, where it lays. But I think probably within the next six to at maximum 12 months, I think it's like, you're going to be able to open this up on like your iPhone and like be able to actually run Node.js on your iPhone in a browser, which is like kind of, kind of insane <laughs> to think yeah, about it. Like, that... I'm going to have a webpage <laughs> and then it's like, cool. Like that's, that's running on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very curious how this works though. You described it earlier as being like, what you're shipping is like a re, almost like a, a way of communicating with the V8 that's already there. But in Firefox, V8 isn't there and your iPhone V8 isn't there. So how is that working on those browsers? So yeah, so basically what what we've kind of done with that end of it is like all of these different, like, and if you look at like Node and Dino and any of these alternative JavaScript runtimes that are out of the browser, right? What they do is they take V8, which provides you with all the stuff you need effectively to, to run a JavaScript engine, but it does not include any of like the built-in stuff, you know, that your browser ships with. Like if you want to have a new date function, that doesn't ship with VA. You have to like provide your own, right? Or if you want to say new URL, that, you know, you all these different things have to be included. And so uh, essentially, like that's actually like kind of the bulk. There, there's more to it than that, but effectively, like the bulk of when you actually look at Node, it's like this stuff is already available in every browser because this stuff is standardized, right? And the stuff that isn't standardized, what we end up doing is compiling it out to WebAssembly or other and, and allow it to run like that, right? Interesting. So then are there specific node versions you support then? Is that something you can like select within StackBlitz? Yeah. Yeah. So so today we're like, I think the, the version we're on is like uh, version 14. I can't remember the subversion, but we've got a one pin version where we're kind of battle testing the technology on. And then once we're once we're out of beta on this thing, we're going to be adding, uh, I think we're the current plan is that we're going to be doing LTS releases. So like every LTS release from 14 on, you know, you'll be able to, to use on StackBlitz. But yeah, so that, that's kind of the idea is that we're going to have a, a list of versions of Node that you'll be able to use here. Okay. Nice. So how about end-to-end testing? So if I, I'm building my app and I've got my unit tests running and all that, how do end-to-end testing is going to try and hit those URLs? Is that going to, is that going to sit on that same emulation layer? I mean, you mentioned it's not yeah. externally accessible outside the browser. So that's an issue. Yeah. Well, so it depends on like, when you say end-to-end, are you thinking like Cypress, something like that? Yeah. Basically? Yeah. Yeah. So what's yeah what's kind of cool is that and so this is part of part of the the story that we're we making the path really smooth for this because it's a, like that's it's a really good question like unit tests are easy like just runs in web container today of course um, yeah, like with no, no problem. problem but yeah but yeah like end to end tests uh it's actually kind of it, it's kind of cool because so there this guy I think his name's Glab over at, at uh, he was at Cypress when he was kind of digging into this but because like all Cypress really does right is it just remotely controls the Chrome instance you know to open a page and like do a certain action whatever have you so what's what's kind of interesting about that though is that if you can actually run the entire dev environment in the browser then you can actually write end to end tests that not only are testing the end website functionality but when you think of something like uh, nextjs that is again blurring the line between server and front end you can actually use Cypress to mock, like, like you know, intercept API data that is going to be server side part of Next.js, and then run an end-to-end test against the entire full stack environment. Oh, right. So this right. actually, whoa, which it, it, it blew my mind because I'd never thought of that. When Gleb posted on Twitter, I was like, "Holy heck!" Like that is insane. yeah, that is kind of mind blowing. Yeah, because like, that, that's kind of like that. That was the the moment. You know, that was just one of those moments where it was like, and it was like a month after you launched the thing, you went and posted that. I was like, holy cow! Like that's actually <laughs> incredible. Because how else would you like in any sane way test out a a server side rendered 
application where you want to mock the data and the database calls or whatever that are happening on the backend side and, and get the same reproducible result, right? Right. Now you can use Cypress to do that effectively. Um, oh. Yeah. How that ties in with all this other stuff, you know, I will fit, kind of figure out like how is it super easy because we can't necessarily call out to Cypress in Stacklets, but like we're working with their team on like a way to where we could potentially do that. But if you're actually running it locally or in CI, it's actually like this actually lets you enables this kind of crazy new capability that just wasn't possible before. That is super cool. Yeah, it's almost like you have to reconsider the mocking question altogether because right now there's all sorts of. You know, you search this on Google, you can find a million articles and best practices, but this gives you like another realm of possibilities. So I almost feel like it's a reckoning if this is in place that you have to reconsider best practices and what you, because what you can do is change. So now what you should do has to change as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of like a whole new, a whole new world of like, just kind of different. Like once you, once you're going to run the, you know, all these environments just in inside of like the same tools that we're using today to write end-to-end tests, it's like kind of like, what does that mean? And how does that allow us to write more reliable software, right? You know, it's like, I think, I think we're just kind of scratching the surface of some of the stuff that's going to be possible. So I think the next thing that people are going to start asking you about is, can you support TypeScript? And when are you coming out with the Python integration so we can start writing Django and Flask apps? <laughs> <laughs> TypeScript works. Yeah, yeah TypeScript nice. fully works. Like, and, and you can you can use these things like TS Node, where there's actually one that just kind of popped up recently called TypeScript Run, and basically, you know, you can actually override the Node runtime to support TypeScript effectively. So, like anything you do on local for Node.js based stuff effectively will work there. Yeah, regarding other languages, so that's actually something that. Where that's kind of the after we solidify support in this in just the Node.js ecosystem, that's kind of where we're going next. And we, I think, we'll actually have some stuff to share by the end of the year. Actually, uh, we've been kind of digging into Python and Rust and Ruby and things like that. So I think we'll we'll actually have some some concrete updates from that and that are pretty cool. Because yeah, I, I think this is the idea here is it's like this could really work for any language not just like javascript or node or whatever have you how though because isn't some <laughs> lo- like because a lot of this is premised off being web-based right because the, the fact that the browser has certain infrastructure in here so i'm curious how other languages would play into this or even be like theoretically possible yeah so that this is this is the interesting stuff. It, like this is the stuff that we're still chipping away at. So we actually there's a group called the the Bytecode Alliance that is a, it's a consortium of companies and Stackbits is actually uh, one of the loving companies. Where so it's like Microsoft, Google, Fastly, ARM, etc. And uh, so they're actually the, the kind of the point of this group is actually to solve this problem. And uh, one of the key things that that's been put out uh, from the the Bytecode Alliance is the WebAssembly system interface. You might have seen this over you know maybe the past couple of years, but uh, essentially. It's a, a standardized interface that lets you do system level calls in WebAssembly. And, and that's really a lot of the problem when you kind of look at porting these different tool chains to run in WebAssembly is that they're they're using these native API services that are are realistically not going to ever ship in a browser, nor should they. And also part of the deal is like we need to improve the security of our software, period. Because we're just we're in a really bad situation right now where dev environments are very easily exploitable and and, and we've got to solve it, right? And so WebAssembly provides a way to do that. And, but we also don't want to give up the security benefits that provides. And so Web, the, the WASI interface is actually really well designed to provide all those sorts of things that you need for you know, file system, networking, et cetera, but actually in a way that's like a lot more secure than how it currently works locally. So that's kind of the current, the current way that, that this is working is that. And there might be other stuff that 
comes along that kind of improves it. But that's you can actually run a lot of languages today in, in WebAssembly using Wasi uh, as, as the primitive, uh, albeit without crazy support for like Django would be a good example of like you could run Python on this, but like Django requires some stuff that might not necessarily be working yet. But that's actually like kind of the, the long term plan. So we're working with all those folks to kind of help build the future of this thing out. So speaking of that, I guess, what are like the, the short term plans right now? You have the, the beta flag on web containers. Uh, when do you expect this to be like production ready? Is this ready? If if your average developer working for your average company is listening to this, should they should they try it out? Are they ready to like just tinker for now and wait for production? What would you recommend? I think for now, like I think there's actually like well, I think the using it in production workflows, uh, we're we're shooting to land by the end of the year here. I think in the interim, what this is useful for today is interactive documentation, so rapid learning, right? We see a lot of design systems actually use stack bullets for this purpose, like, because, well, not to get into the gritty, but effectively, when you have a design system, your design system is only as good as how, how easy it is to adopt, right? And so having interactive documentation makes that a lot easier. Also for bug reproductions, having a live environment is super useful yeah. for reproing stuff. So we see a lot of that. And of course, just rapid prototyping this is like kind of like a code pen plus 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 sort of thing. Like that use case totally works today, and so I think from those angles, right? I think that's that's where we're seeing a lot of pickup from like Next.js is embedding this in their docs. Byte is, is using this for their issue tracker, etc. I think that's where people can really use this today, and that's actually helping us solidify the core runtime stability by actually testing this across, uh, you know, millions of different clients and whatever have you. And then when the new stuff comes out, I think you could go to like stackbook.com slash P2. I think that's the URL. It's been a while since I checked it out. But um, there's like a form where you can kind of sign up for the kind of the production grade workflows. We're going to be starting to open up uh, an alpha of that uh, within, I think, the next couple of months here. That is the URL. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just to confirm. Awesome. I, it's, been a, it's been a minute since I was like, I'm pretty sure that. I hope that's, I think that's still up. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> also, TS Run, we should drop that in there. I, I was looking around and it's like, there's one TS Run that's got like 82 downloads a month or something. I'm like, that's probably not it. <laughs> I, I, don't I, think, think that, I hope that's not it. I think there's there's TS node. TS dash node is like yeah. probably the most popular one. And then I think there's yeah. TypeScript dash run. I think that's the. I, oh, someone, okay. TypeScript. Uh, I think. Literally. Yeah, I think the, the creator, I think, tweeted about it the other day. And that one's cool. It uses ES. That, that was actually going to be my pick. Is it, it uses ES build. It, it's kind of like what Dino does with SWC, where all the TypeScript files get stripped by SWC is before they get evaluated. It, it's like that for Node. And so, I don't know, by the day, it's kind of like, man, what's the value prop of Dino? You know, because <laughs> it's like, you can just kind of like use something like that where it's just, okay, TypeScript by default and it just pops off the types. And anyways, I digress. But yeah, so <laughs> I, I, I guess I just said my pick. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great segue, actually. Hopefully you have another pick we can do. Uh, so let's go to the week's picks. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. TJ, you want to start us off? 
Sure. I'm going to pick a podcast episode I listened to just the other day. It's podcast is called Decoder. It's run by the people at The Verge. And they did an episode on the global chip shortage, which is great because it was like, like 102 level explanation they had on a professor that studies the thing that was really good at explaining it. So if you hear news stories of the global chip shortage and want to speak intelligently about it at dinner parties or whatever, right, amongst amongst friends and such, I found it found it to be a really good just like primer on where chips come from, which is something I don't think about very often. Like how do chips, you know, all the supply chain around it, and then what's the drama behind it? Why is there a backup? What's being done about it? So I found it interesting. So if you do too, it's like an hour long primer on it. So check it out. Yeah, sounds fascinating. Paige? My pick today is going to be something that I'm actually using for the first time, and it is a, a new mic. I'm getting ready to record a course for a company called New Line that does all sorts of different web development courses. And one of the things that they highly recommend is to use something better than what is built into your computer or your AirPods. So the mic that I would recommend is called the Elgato Wave 3. It is, it's probably about $150, maybe $200 US if you buy it brand new. But actually on Amazon, they have refurbished ones that come into about 110, 120, depending on. And it, it, I, so I got it. It looks like brand new. I have 90 days to try it out and take it back if I don't like it. But between this mic and the, uh, the software that they provide to make it really sound great, it, it's been fantastic so far. So it, in addition to whatever they provide in terms of software, you can set up noise gates and noise suppressors so you don't hear the keyboard clicks and the mouse movements behind it. So I would definitely recommend it if you're looking for a good mic that's a step above maybe the Blue Yeti. <laughs> nice. That's very cool. All right, Eric? Gosh, yeah, a TypeScript run. I'm just going to say that again. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the other thing I actually that I checked into the other day is like, because we, we we enabled support provide, and I've heard a lot of good things about it. And so I actually was like reading through the docs. And one, the docs of that of Vite are really good. But two, it's like Vite is like, I, I was actually, I played around with it a lot. And it's actually really, really solid. Like I get why people like love Vite. It's actually really well engineered, well designed. Super easy to use, so I, I think I think my my pick will go go to Vite and uh, TS or TypeScript Node. Those are my my two picks. Yeah, I was just doing a video on SolidJS, and their standard outfitting is is with Vite, and it's just blazingly fast. I mean, Solid's yeah. fast on its own, but Vite is amazing. Cool. Well, my pick for this week is Westworld. We started watching Westworld again. My daughter's into it. And it's been, it's really good. The second time around, actually, you see a lot more and get a lot more detail out of it. So yet again, HBO just doing excellent, excellent work. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for showing up. Thank you, Eric, for your time. And we'll see you on the next React Roundup. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good one. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.